welcome and say thank you. I'm not going to tell you how many years ago it was, but uh, Marsha had a special birthday. And if you know what I mean by special, right? I don't want to tell you how old she was that day. Uh, she was born in 1952, but I'm not, <laughs> not going to tell you her age. So she said on this special birthday, I'd like to do something different, you know, if we can plan ahead. I had been to Paris once. I went to a conference. I wasn't much of a tourist while we were in Italy. Um, we were in the work and I, you know, did, did, got up to Paris, I think, twice while I was in Europe, 31 years. That's kind of odd. But uh, the first time I went for a conference and I said, I'm not going to do anything. I'm not going to see anything because Marsh is not here with me. I'm going to wait till we go back. It was like 30-some, 20-some uh, years later that I finally got back to Paris. Um, and we visited a lot of museums and uh, art museums. There's a lot of nice artwork in, uh, in, uh, in Paris. We visited the Louvre. Uh, we, we saw the Orsay Museum and many others. And as we're going through these museums, we noticed the names of many great artists whom we all know. But one name kept popping up in every museum. That was the name of Van Gogh. You know the name, right? I knew the name, but there was a fact about his life that I really didn't know. I didn't know that at one point of his life, in a nine-year period, Van Gogh painted almost 900 works of art. 900 works of art. From 1881 to 1890, Van Gogh produced 860 works, which amount to a painting about uh, 100 paintings a year. That's eight to nine works a month. It's two a week. You know, my picture of an artist is saying, well, big deal. Anybody can sit in a field and hold their thumb up and, you know, put some paint on an easel. But Van Gogh said, no, it's not quite that simple. He wrote, if you become a painter, one of the things that would surprise you is that painting and everything connected with it is quite hard work in physical terms. So he's saying it's not just sitting in some uh, nice quiet field with whatever, you know, Kool-Aid or, or lemonade, whatever, whatever you, your favorite drink is. He said, leaving aside the mental exertion, the hard thought, it demands considerable physical effort, and that day after day. So you can imagine with this physical effort, this mental effort, 900 paintings, two a week for nine years. With all that hard work, Van Gogh did not enjoy the success and prosperity of many other artists of his time. Did you know that? Allegedly, he committed suicide. He was prone to depression. But despite the feelings 
that he had, the depression, the, the, despite the negative or the lack of positive res, re, responses or results, he continued to paint. And as I thought about Van Gogh, for some reason, Mark chapter 4 came to mind. I thought about our responsibility as believers. Because Van Gogh knew that he had a God-given talent. He was responsible to use that talent, but he was not responsible for the results. And that's what Jesus tells us in Mark chapter 4. He says, we're responsible to sow the seed. We're not responsible for the results. Let's look to see what Jesus had to say in Mark chapter 4. We'll be looking at verses um, as we go along, 1 through 20 this morning. But the main idea is we're responsible to sow. We're not responsible for the results. We can't control how people respond. Let's look at Mark chapter 4, verses 1 through 4. Mark wrote, And he began to teach again by the seashore. And such a very great multitude gathered before him that he got into a boat in the sea and sat down. And the multitude, and all the multitude were by the seashore on the land. And he was teaching them many things in parables. And he was saying to them in his teaching, Listen. Listen to this. Behold, the sower went out to sow. And it came about that as he was sowing, some seed fell beside the road. And the birds came and ate it up. We'll look at the interpretation in a minute. But Jesus is speaking to the crowd. He's sharing stories and he begins to tell parables. That's because in the context, if you look at Mark chapter 3 and if you look later, you'll see that it was a context of people who did not understand. You had the Pharisees. They heard Jesus' teaching and they were envious. And they said, let's kill him. You had the demon-possessed that came up and said, you are the Christ. They said, let's reveal him. But it wasn't his time. You had those emotional uh, miracle seekers who wanted to touch Jesus. Let's touch him. His family in the context came and said, uh, this is embarrassing. Let's hide him. So Jesus said, or Jesus decided to teach in parables. So he throws this parable beside the disciples and he says there's a sower. And this sower was one who reaches into his bag. He carried his bag on uh, one of his shoulders and he would reach into the bag and he would scatter seed. Uh, do you remember Alex Rodriguez, A-Rod? You remember how he played in the playoffs? He couldn't hit a thing. And that's what the sower was like. He's throwing a seed out and just couldn't hit a thing. He's like Alex Rodriguez, A-Rod. <laughs> and Jesus said this uh, seed fell on uh, the hard-packed pathway that people walked upon near the, near the field. The disciples were just scratching their head. They just didn't understand it. Wait a minute, we're talking about spiritual things and all of a sudden Jesus talks about throwing seeds out. 
What in the world is he talking about? Jesus explains to him in verse 14. He says, look guys, I know you don't get it. He says in verse 14, the sower sows the word. This is the word about the kingdom in another context. And these are the ones who are beside the road where the word is sown. And when they hear, immediately Satan comes and takes away the word which has been sown in them. So Jesus says as we're witnessing about the kingdom of God and we're sharing our faith, some of that seed will fall on deaf ears. People won't listen. You know the person. It could be your parents. It could be your friends. It could be colleagues. It could be someone in your family. It was definitely the Pharisees. I mean, how many times had they opened up the Word of God? And uh, it just fell on deaf ears. The bird, Satan, came and took the seed away. Today it's people who say, well, the Bible's just a fable. It's so unscientific and, you know, there is no God. You know the four horsemen of the apocalypse? Uh, the uh, new aggressive atheists from England. I guess there are three now. One died in 2011. But you've got Christopher Hitchens who died. You've got Richard Dawkins. He's the one responsible for putting the publicity on the buses in London, or I guess throughout England. There is no God, or probably there is no God. He didn't want to scare too many people. Christopher Hitchens, uh, Daniel Dennett, and Sam Harris. These four are the proclaimed four horsemen of the apocalypse. They're so hardcore. You, th you, you would think they would never pick up a Bible, right? You ever see an atheist with a Bible? You wouldn't think it would happen. These men know their Bibles. They know it probably better than we do. They point out the, the inconsistencies they think they find. As a matter of fact, Christopher Hitchens wrote a book. He said, uh, God is not great. He also said, religion poisons everything. Talk about hardcore. He said, I, I know my Bible. He wrote, I frequently passed top in scripture class when he was in school. I would read all the chapters that led to a verse and all the ones that followed it. That's a good hermeneutic. You read the context. But his ultimate conclusion was, there is no God. Religion poisons everything. Europe today could be defined as a, a continent where the seed is being swooped away by Satan. You know, we think, oh, Europe is such a beautiful continent. It is so beautiful to live there. Missiologists say this is probably the primary missionary field today. There are more missionary, uh, missionaries, yes, per capita, no, more atheists per capita than any other country. Um, the church has less than 1% uh, or 1% of the population is evangelical in about eight countries in Europe. Italy, maybe there's 0.1% believers because Satan came 
and took the word. One man said, we have a Christian Europe without Christianity. How can you have a Christian Europe without Christianity? Well, they have tradition. So we're not responsible for the response. We cannot control people after 31 years in Italy of planting the seed and, and uh, looking for great results. It just didn't happen sometimes, though we had good results. But I can go through a list of names that we witnessed to folks day after day after day. And after 31 years of friendship, they still do not know the Lord. But we keep sowing. There's a second seed in this passage in verses 5 and 6. We're not responsible for the response. We can't control people's thought, but we are responsible to sow. Verses 5 and 6 of chapter 4. It says, And the other seed fell on the rocky ground where it did not have much soil. And immediately it sprang up because it had no depth of soil. And after the sun had risen, it was scorched. And because it had no root, it withered away. In Israel, there's a, there's a lot of dry, arid ground. And the wind blows and covers up that, uh, that fertile soil. And you might have a layer of kind of dust or, or sand. Some of the seed that was thrown by the sower, according to Jesus, fell where there was rocky ground underneath this layer of soil. And it kind of sprang up quickly, but withered quickly. Jesus says these are people who have no profundity in their life. They're superficial. There's that superficial layer. In verse 16, he explains it to his disciples. He said, you know, we're still not getting it. He said, in a similar way, these are the ones on whom seed was sown in rocky places, who when they hear the word, immediately they receive it with joy. Now, wait a minute. Is that a believer? Mark used a word that doesn't describe someone who actually believed, but they said, oh, wow, hey, this is great. Uh, I'm having an emotional experience. Um, this is new. My life is new. I remember when I became a Christian, I, I graduated Brick Township High School. For those that don't know me, so I'm, I'm from Ray Dunn Road. I lived in Wall Township. But I went to uh, Ocean County College for just to join parties. I wasn't a Christian. And we had a fraternity house out in Jackson pastor came into that fraternity house and uh, he opened a Bible. I wanted to throw him out. Uh, one night I decided I'm going to go and debate him and uh, I lost the debate naturally. Here I am today, fortunately. And I went home to my parents and I tried to witness to them, oh, I found something and Jesus, and you know, the Jesus freaks were popular back then in the 70s, and they're looking at me with my long hair. Yes, I did have hair. Um, and um, my mother said to me, this is just a fad you're going through. Uh, one day you'll grow up. I guess that never happened. So I was one who received it with joy. Uh, others received 
the same word with joy. There were a number of others in, in our fraternity house. And they were all oh, doing the same thing. And, oh, we have to witness. This is so wonderful. Our lives are changed. Well, some just dropped away. Because they hadn't received it into their lives. It was just a momentary uh, change or a momentary joy that they had. I remember sitting in, in the class at uh, Ocean County College. There was a, a professor of literature. One day, I don't know if he saw my Bible. I think I, I became a Christian eventually. And uh, I had this Bible sitting on my, on my desk. I don't know if he saw it. I don't know if he understood what it was. But he decided one morning, I don't know why, to just say, you know, nobody believes the Bible anymore. Nobody believes the fairy tale of Adam and Eve. And I'm sitting there saying, you know, what do I do? Do I say something? And I learned a lesson. Never argue with a man that has the mic in his hand. He'll always have the last word. So I just calmly sat there and let him go on with his, uh, with his fairy tales. But you can imagine the students in that class. You can imagine listening to a professor so-and-so. Oh, since he said it, it must be true. Did you know that 80% of the youth, the people that attend your youth group, will leave the church after they start college? 80%. That's a pretty significant number. We have seven people here. Let's just say there are eight. Uh, one, one of these will, or two of these will remain in the church. If two, if we have ten people together, two will remain in the church. Eight will leave. Eighty percent of your youth leave the church because they don't have deep roots in the Word of God. They may receive it with joy. They may eat the pizza at the youth group with joy. They may have a great time singing or whatever they're doing, but there's no profundity. Eighty percent. But we're not responsible for the response. We are responsible to sow the seed. Jesus says our mission is uh, to, to develop disciples. Go into the world, or as you're going into the world, make disciples of all nations. That was our goal in Italy. We had a motto in the church. We wanted to make mature and united disciples to reach our zone and the world for Christ. Make disciples. We started the, uh, what we call the Facultà Theologica. It's a training center, informal training for pastors and leaders that uh, know nothing or knew nothing about the Bible. Because we want to have an impact on the society. We didn't want people just to come and respond with that joy and say, oh, this is wonderful, it's nice to be in church. Oh, I have to commit my life to Christ? No, thank you. There's a third seed that Jesus talks about. You're not responsible for the response. You are responsible to sow. Verse 7. There will be some success. The other seed fell among the thorns, and the thorns grew up and choked it, and it yielded no crop. Now, wait a minute. We're sowing a seed of God. Isn't it effectual? Don't people... Just come to the Lord quickly and stay in the faith? No. The other seed fell among the thorns. Grew up and choked it out. Well, what does that mean? 
Well, it means that uh, the soil was not prepared. It means it didn't uh, uh, necessarily have the space for the plant to grow. In Italy, uh, Marcia would uh, come home every now and then, and especially in the last couple of years. My son, uh, son-in-law has uh, cancer, and uh, went through aggressive therapy for that, chemotherapy for that, and and with weddings and funerals, our, our parents died, and we came home for that, and a lot of things. And I sent Marcia home many times alone, and the last thing she would say to me is, uh, "Don't forget to water the plants." I'm not a horticulturist. Uh, I didn't study it. I know I know a couple of things about it. I know that plants need water. I know they need oxygen. No, they don't need oxygen. See, I already messed up. Carbon, carbon dioxide. See, I, it's, I told you I'm not a horticulturist. Thank you. As soon as I said oxygen, I know they don't need oxygen. What else do they need? For photosynthesis. Now, what if the bunch of weeds are in the flower pot? What happens? Competition. Who usually wins? The weeds. Uh, my neighbor, Patrizia, would come over and say, Tim, did you water the plants? Ah, oh, yeah, I'm, I'm going to do that. I just don't have time. And uh, she'd ask, well, you know, she'd say, you have to get the weeds out of the, out of the flower pots, otherwise the plants are going to grow. And I'm looking and I'm thinking, now which is the weed? <laughs> which is the flower and which is... And Jesus says the same thing in verse 18. He said, look, there are people, others. They're the ones whom seed was sown among the thorns. And these are the ones who have heard the word and the worries of the world. Presidential elections, uh, Trump winning, um, what's going to happen to Obamacare? Let's get rid of Obamacare. Let's the, all these worries and deceitfulness come in and they choke the word. He said the deceitfulness of riches come in. And the desires for other things. Wow, we need a new hot water heater. Uh, we, need to, we need to put the air conditioning in and they're hooking gas up uh, to the homes in Seizure Knoll uh, where we have a house now and... Uh, what are we going to do with that? And where are we going to get the money from? And we forget about Christ. And we present the word that's saying, this is the reason for our life. This is the significance of life and eternal life. It's in Jesus Christ. And then people are saying, yeah, but I have to pay the mortgage. What am I going to do for that? Sell the house. Riches are deceitful. They fool you. They think that's the end goal of life. I need a new car. I have kids that need to go to college. I have to make money. I'll think about Jesus later. Desires for other things and they enter in and choke the word and it becomes unfruitful. You might be sitting here this morning thinking about other things. Somebody might have invited you to a Bible study and you're thinking, well, you know, if I only had time, 
uh, things are difficult and I have to work overtime this week. Uh, maybe I'll come uh, next week. And next week comes and you're thinking, well, you know, they invited me to that Bible study, but boy, I'm a grandmother and my, my daughter needs me to babysit. So, I may, uh, you know, I'll go to the Bible study in two weeks. Maybe you've heard about Christ and you're thinking, well, you know, one day I'll make a decision, but I don't want him to cramp my style. I have to have fun. Yeah, I'd love to one day. One day I'll change. One day I'll... One day comes and you never make a decision. You put it off too late. So as Christians, we're not responsible for the response. We can't make people believe. But boy, would we like to. So we're responsible to sow the seed. Here's where the good news comes in. Verse 8. And the other seeds fell into good soil, and they grew up and increased, and they were yielding a crop and were producing 30, 60, and 100 fold. So if you have ears, listen well. Jesus brought across the interpretation and he said, verse 20, those who uh, responded are those ones on whom the seed was sown in good ground. It was ready to receive the word. And they hear the word and they accept it and they bear fruit 30, 60, and 100 fold. Many of us have heard the word, but sometimes I wonder if we're bearing fruit. I wonder what the results are. Of our life. Some people say, well, you know, I'll go to church on Sunday. That's a good thing. Yeah, that's a good thing. Some say, well, you know, I'm not, a, I'm not an evangelist. Uh, I can't witness. You know, you're not alone. We are now working in the Bronx. The Bronx. Forget about it. And we're training missionary appointees before they get to the field. How many do you think know how to witness? Hardly any. How many have made disciples in their life? Hardly any. So we're trying to multiply our seed. We've been asked to work with International Project up in the Bronx, training missionaries on how to witness effectively for the Lord, how to start Bible studies before they get to the field, and how to make disciples that plant churches that plant churches. I would hope and pray that that's the goal of every church, to make disciples that make disciples, that make disciples.
my goal is, and our goal together, Marcia and I, would like to see at least four generations of people one day in, our, in a group. And that's what happened a few weeks ago. Uh, the man who led me to the Lord, you, some of you might know him. Uh, we were involved in starting this church. Ken Kirby was a church planter who worked with, worked with uh, Pete Michaels. And uh, Ken was there, and I was there, and someone I led to the Lord was there, and someone that I led to the Lord had someone that he led to the Lord there. So we had four generations of believers. That's what Jesus says. You sow the seed, you receive it with joy, but some people go into profundity and they produce 30, 60, or more. What's the fruit in your life? As you look at the generations behind you, can you say, wow, I have four generations of believers. The person who led me to the Lord, me, my disciple, and his disciple. What's stopping you? I told Italians if I, if I could start over, I would do two things. I'd uh, cut out a lot of the extraneous things that we do in the Italian church. I would fight a lot less. Maybe I'd eat a little bit more. I don't know. Uh, but two things I would do. I would teach them how to evangelize and how to produce disciples a little bit better. Uh, Maria was here. Uh, Maria and Enzo and uh, their kids were here. Some people remember that from, I think, about 10 years ago. We left neighbors back in Italy and we said, well, boy, we've witnessed to them. Um, Patrizia was so close. I mean, it was like, oh, Lord, give me one more day. But we had to start our ministry in July, August. They wanted us up in our apartment in July. We say, we have, to, we have to leave. Lord, Patrizia is all alone. And there's Anna, who was, they were coming to church, and they, they would listen to sermons, and they, they were so involved, and they'd ask questions, and they'd come to our small group. We said, how are they, what's going to happen to them? What's going to happen to them? October, uh, October 30th was my birthday, my 56th birthday. Well... Then I woke up and it was the 66th birthday. Uh, we were able to hook up on Skype and we saw baptisms. We saw Anna and Patricia baptized because Maria picked up the baton. We passed the baton to her and she witnessed to Patricia and Anna and they came to the Lord. That should be our goal to produce, despite the response. Remember Van Gogh? Remember we said he produced 860 works in a nine-year period? How many of those do you think he sold? Let's lower the number of made 60. He didn't sell them all. Let's say, how many think he sold 600? 600, uh, 400, any takers? 200s, I hear that. 
No, we're selling to the lowest bidder today. <laughs> 50. Wasn't 200. 50? 50? He actually sold one. In his lifetime, he sold one painting. Can you imagine? He, he talked about all that hard work, that mental fatigue, that, that physical stress. And he produced, and he produced, and he produced. He didn't control the response, but he knew he was responsible to paint. We can't control the response of people, but we are responsible to sow. What will you do this week? Will you take the Word of God and sow in people's lives. If you don't know how, ask your pastor to teach you. If you don't know how, maybe he'll send you up to, uh, to us in New York. We have a program during the week in uh, J- July and August where you can come up and learn how to evangelize and make disciples. But our responsibility is to sow the seed. I thank you that you've supported us for all these years and that you continue to support us. Marsh and I are privileged to have you as partners. As we sow the seed, pray for us in the Bronx, the Bronx, and uh, lift us up before the Lord that we might continue to produce disciples who produce and make disciples for the Lord. Father, thank you for your word. Um, Sometimes we uh, forget that our primary responsibility is to speak about you. That should be our first joy and our first love. We sang about that this morning. Our chains have been broken off. We've been set free. We want others to share that joy, to share that liberty. Sometimes we get caught up in other things, other worries, desires, but I pray this week that we'll reflect upon our responsibility to sow your seed, the good news, the saving grace of Jesus Christ. Amen.